We got down to verse 5. Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. And we pick up and we go as far as we can in each lesson. Take it chapter by chapter and verse by verse. But if you look at verse 5, we've already studied it and then we'll pick up with verse 6. Well, we better read a little bit more before we get there because some will not know what we're talking about. Uh, let's just begin reading with verse 1. It won't take that long. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, <coughs> who, is, <coughs> excuse me, who is worthy... <coughs> Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. Now John was weeping because no one was worthy to open this book of seven seals. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Now, these, one of the elders is one of the redeemed because the 24 elders we've already pointed out represent the redeemed in glory. We mentioned that in our, last, in our previous lessons. So one of the elders uh, saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. So here's one that was to be looked for who was the line of the tribe of Judah, and who was the root of David. We identified that particular one in our last lesson as the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, it gave us the promise in the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 49 and verse 9, where in verse 10 also that tells that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the lawgiver between his feet until Shiloh comes. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. And almost all Bible scholars uh, admit and uh, believe that that is a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we prove very uh, definitely that the root of David, that Jesus is the offspring of David. He said in the last chapter of the book that I'm the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Also we find that Paul says in the book of Romans chapter 1 verse 3 and 4, that Christ is made of the seed of David according to the flesh. And it says He's declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So He's both the seed of David and the Son of God with power. Now then, so uh, it says the line of the tribe of Judah has prevailed to open the book. Now then, Instead of a lion, John sees in verse 6, and here's where we pick up with our lesson. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb. The lion is a lamb. The lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus, became the lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And in the midst of the elders, it says, stood a lamb as it had been slain. Slain, the word there means slain in sacrifice. That when Christ is seen in glory, and when these things begin to take place, and the redeemed are gathered round Him, and this chapter will show the redeemed with Christ in glory, 
singing a song of redemption. When that time takes place, and all of us, I was looking out over the congregation tonight, and I was thinking how wonderful it will be when all of us are together in glory. That's going to be a reality someday. And if we didn't believe that and teach that, we wouldn't believe the Bible, and we wouldn't be teaching the Bible. So the hope of every believer is a reunion and a fellowship together with all of God's people in glory. And when that time comes, what I start to say is we're going to see Him as a lamb slain in sacrifice. He's going to still bear the marks of our redemption in His body. I loved uh, the song that uh, Shirley sang Sunday morning too, as well as all the others, but this one particular. Out of the three nails and two pieces of wood, the cross, building a bridge to heaven. And through the redemptive blood of Christ, that we will be able to, to uh, be there in glory. And for no other reason. There's nothing in the world that you can do to purchase your salvation. It's already been done. And it's done by what Jesus did on the cross. And anything you try to add to it and say, well, uh, I'm saved by grace, but I'll do this and this will save me. That will not save you. It may add up to your works. It may add up to rewards in heaven. It may be that it will add up to blessings in this life and in the life to come. But it will no more save you than anything in this world because Jesus did that by His own sacrifice. And the Bible says you're bought with a price. You're not your own. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So instead of looking for a lion, they, I mean, in looking for a lion, they, He sees a lamb. In the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain. Now then, when you think of the lamb, this is a Greek word, A-R-N-I-O-N. A-R-N-I-O-N, a lamb. And it's used 29 times here in the book of Revelation. But it's only used one other time, this particular word. There's the word lamb in our English language used several times in the Gospels. But... It's only used one time in the Gospel of John, chapter 21 and verse 15, anywhere else in the New Testament. And of course, we know that the word lamb is, is uh, used in John chapter 1 as well. Behold, the Lamb of God. But that's not the same word as used in John 21, verse 15, because there are two different Greek words in the, in the original. But 29 times in the book of Revelation and only one other time in the New Testament, and that is John 21, verse 15. And you know, that's where Jesus was telling Peter, feed my lambs. By the way, it's plural there. Feed my lambs. Uh, if you'll notice, it says, uh, a lamb as it had been slain. And as we try to look at these verses, we try to develop each thought as we go along. So continue to look at the verse because we'll see more things. Uh, having seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Now then, expecting to behold a kingly and ferocious lion, John turns and observes this lamb, which while obviously he was alive, the lamb was alive, nevertheless exhibited the marks of sacrifice. He has been dead, he said in the first chapter, I am he that was dead and am alive. And he's now alive. The horns are symbolical of power and authority. Notice it says seven horns. 
By the way, seven is the number of completion. So this is all power and all authority is given to me, Jesus said. And the eyes signify insight, uh, watchfulness, and comprehension, and perception. And the seven eyes means that he has complete perception. By the way, I'll show you something in a moment. And then we find uh, the, the next thing. It says, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. The seven spirits of God, not different spirits, but the sevenfold fullness and completeness, if it's seven, the completeness of the Holy Spirit. So what you have here, this speaks of uh, the Spirit of God is everywhere present. So, in all of these things, notice again, having seven horns. Horns in the Bible speak of power, by the way. The Bible says that uh, there's raised up a horn of salvation. I believe it's in Luke chapter 1. A horn of salvation. A power of salvation. So, Christ was raised up to be the Savior. So, here's the complete power. So, this speaks of God being all-powerful. And then the next thing... All-knowing or uh, uh, all-seeing, you know. He sees everything. All-knowing with the seven eyes. And then the Spirit of God, the sevenfold plenitude of the Spirit of God, means that He's everywhere present. So you see these wonderful things about God here in this chapter and about the Lord Jesus Christ who is the Son of God. And the Bible says, I and my Father are one, Jesus said. So when you talk about God, you talk about the the Son of God as well. Remember in John 14, by the way, I used that out at the cemetery today in the message. Someone says, after it's over, said, did you know a lot of these folks were Jehovah's Witnesses? I I can't help it. I preached a Baptist sermon. So anyway, John chapter 14. And anyway, in that passage of Scripture, uh, Jesus said, he that has seen me has seen the Father. When, when one said, show us the Father and it will satisfy us, it will suffice us. And Jesus says, he that he has seen me has seen the Father. He says, don't you know that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? The works that I do, they are of the Father. The words that I say, they are of the Father. So, what you see here in the fact that you have all power and you have all knowing and you have Everywhere present. This reveals God to us. We talk about the the omnipotence of God and the omnipresence of God and uh, and the fact that God is all-knowing as well. And you find all these things revealed here. Now then, let's look at the next verse. It says in verse 7, And He came and took the book out of the right hand of Him that sat on the throne. So Christ glorified the line of the tribe of Judah, the root and offspring of David, the Lamb of God even in glory, is the only one in the whole universe that was found worthy to take the book. And he took the book out of the hand of God the Father who was seated on the throne. And the Bible tells us what he did. And when he had taken the book, The four beasts and the four and twenty elders. Now remember the four beasts, we explained those as living creatures. I hope many of you got in on the previous lessons. But they're living creatures. And we've already dealt with that, so we cannot retrace our steps on that. 
But these living creatures and then the 24 elders represent the redeemed of the Old and the New Testament. The 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. So they fall down in worship before Christ, before the Lamb, the Lamb of God. And if you'll notice, it says they have harps and golden vials or bowls. A vial is a is a shallow, uh, a low-cut but broad bowl. And it's a vial that contained the incense. It says vials full of odors or incense, uh, which are the prayers of the saint of saints. By the way, these are the prayers not of the saints of this day and age. But the saints of that time and that tribulation period that's about to come up. And we're going to see that there are tribulation martyrs as well. And so it anticipates the, the prayers then and there in glory. Which are the prayers of the saints. of saints. And these redeemed, it says in verse 9, And they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book. They give Christ all the honor and glory and worthiness. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain. That goes back to Christ being the sacrifice for our sins. And hast, past tense, redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Now, not only do the 24 elders represent the redeemed of the Old and New Testament, but there's coming a time in the seventh chapter where we're going to see those that are redeemed in the same way during the tribulation period. When we begin to discuss in the sixth chapter the tribulation period, you get into the seventh chapter and they're going to be redeemed in the same way and they'll be able to sing a song of redemption as well because uh, salvation is by the redemptive blood of Christ in any particular age. The Old Testament saints were redeemed by the blood of Christ, looking forward to the fact that He would shed His blood on the cross, anticipating and believing that Christ would come and die for their sins. All their sacrifices in the Old Testament simply pointed out the fact that the perfect sacrifice had never come. So when Jesus came, then there was no need any longer for those Old Testament sacrifices. He put an end to them. The Bible says, but now once in the end of the world hath He appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And that was a clincher to all the Old Testament sacrifices that were offered under the Jewish economy and Levitical priesthood. Alright, let's look at this now. It says in verse 9, For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation all over the world, Jews and Gentiles, and has made us <clears throat> unto our God, <clears throat> excuse me, kings and priests, <clears throat> and we shall reign on the earth. We'll rule. We'll reign. Back, if you, in my Bible, I can glance back to the last verse of the last two verses of the third chapter. I don't know if you can, but glance back. To verse 21 and 22. You may have to turn one page back. 
But it's to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. See, the overcomers, before the church was taken up, the saints were taken up in chapter 4, during the letters to the seven churches, the very last church that's mentioned in the third chapter, verse 21, he's saying to the overcomers that I'm going to grant you to sit with me in my throne just as my Father grants me to sit with Him in His throne. <clears throat> so, in chapter 5, Verse 10, it says, And has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign or rule on, on the earth. So, here's an indication that that is going to take place. What he promised to the church age, or during the church age. Now, verse 11. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne. And the beasts, these, and the elders, the beasts are the living creatures, by the way. It's a... I don't... I. Don't want to repeat myself too much, but on the other hand, I don't want you to be confused with the beasts that are wicked in the 13th chapter. So these are altogether different uh, kind of, of creatures because they're the living creatures uh, in the presence of God. It says uh, in verse 11, I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. You cannot even number that. Thousands of thousands. How would you even multiply that out? Uh, in verse 12, saying with a loud voice. Now the angels are saying with a loud voice. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessings. Now here's a sevenfold honor to the Lord. All power. To receive power. Remember Jesus said all power is given unto me. Jesus was also rich. Notice riches is next. The Bible says though he was rich. Yet for your sakes he became poor. That ye through his poverty might be made rich. He was rich with all the heaven, heavenly glory. And wisdom. Look at wisdom. The Bible says that he is made unto us. Wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Christ is the personification of wisdom. And then strength. Paul said, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And then honor. He is due all honor. We honor the Father. He says, if you honor the Father, you honor the Son. If you honor the Son, you honor the same honor as the Father also. I think you can find a lot of that in John chapter uh, 6, 5, rather, and I believe it's five instead of six. It is five. And then you'll find glory. Look at that. And glory. Remember we preach Sunday morning on God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. I believe that's Galatians 6 verse 14. And then blessings. Blessings. All the blessings. This sevenfoldness of the... Uh, Worthiness of the Lamb that was slain to receive what? Power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Psalm 103 for the blessing. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. And then it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Many times during that psalm. Now then, verse 13. 
And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Notice, equal praise and equal tribute is given both to him that sitteth on the throne and to the Lamb. You see, when you worship the Son, you worship the Father. And we give you passage after passage of Scripture that shows you that. In the book of 1 John, the, in the Gospel of John chapter 5, and especially here, it says, And power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Now verse 14 says, And the four be said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. Now then, if you'll notice this last verse of this chapter and the tenth verse of the fourth chapter. Tenth and eleventh verse of the fourth chapter. Look at four, verse ten and eleven, and let me read it. The four and twenty elders fell down, fall down before him that that sat up on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying thou art worthy O Lord to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Now then in the fifth chapter verse 14 and the four beasts said amen and the four and twenty elders fell down and worshiped him that liveth forever and ever. The difference is in chapter 4, they worship, they're worshiping God who is the creator of all things. Here they're worshiping God who has redeemed us to God out of every nation, kindred and tongue. There's a twofold relationship or twofold need for you and I to worship the Lord. First of all, we worship Him who has made us. And we worship Him, secondly, who has redeemed us, who has saved us. We need to, have you heard people say, well, I worship my Creator. Yes, I worship my Creator. But I also worship my Redeemer. He redeemed us. And both, both of these things are worthy of all worship from every one of God's children. Aren't you glad God has made us? The psalmist said he has made, that we're wonderfully made. Can you think of any way that it would just happen to be that there would be a human body like yours and mine? Other than a great Creator that had made us. Oh, I know we got all these guys that say we started out with a little cell somewhere and it turned into a tadpole and then finally it became a frog and turned into a fish and the fish began to fly and he became a bird and then the bird turned into a monkey. You believe that? I find it a lot easier to believe God made every one of them individually. And He said everything after His kind. Doesn't stretch my imagination near as much. And yet you have people that believe that kind of stuff. I don't believe it. I believe God says, uh, by faith, the Word of God in Hebrews chapter 11, it says, by faith we understand that the world were framed by the Word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. That God created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so, uh, He's the great creator and He's also 
Because of man's sin, he sent his son to be our redeemer. And for both reasons, we worship God. Chapter 6 now, we get into a different aspect. The, the lamb has received the seals, and now he begins to open these seals of this, uh, this scroll. We explain that it's a roll, and it's sealed on the edges with seven seals. And so you break the seal, and then you unroll it until you come to the next seal. And when these seven seals are opened, and by the way, it doesn't take long in the chronology here of the book to show you that all the seals are open. When all the seals are broken, the whole scroll is revealed. It's there. And John records it. John, uh, I mean, John uh, speaks of it. And he he's written down everything. But it, it is all revealed there to us. And we just have to take the things and see what John saw. What I'm trying to say is once all the seals are broken, the whole thing is revealed. You have other things that happen. And John takes note of them and reveals them to us. So what I'm trying to say is that it's not just a chronological thing. All of these seals are opened. And then it's all before us. And then you turn it over and it's written on the backside. Remember it says in verse 1. Look at verse 1. I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the back side, sealed with seven seals. So once the seven seals are broken, then you read all that's on the front side and then you turn it over and you start reading uh, in sequence what's on the back side. Remember how we used to take the little old spiral notebook and we'd write on both sides of the page. Now they do stuff and take a legal pad and they write usually just on one side and flip it up there and one side. But when you write it on both sides, you have to turn over and read the rest of it. And in this case, it was written written to the end of the scroll and then it was flipped over and written back, all the way back. So that you'd have, uh, like you'd take a, a book, if you wanted to use it in a book form, which this was not, but if you wrote all the way through on the top of the page and you get to the end of your paper, you'd start writing on the back, you'd come back the other direction, wouldn't you? And so God's word was com- uh, uh, concerning this, uh, the future uh, judgments and all the things that were going to take place was all revealed once these seven seals were opened. Now let's begin to deal with the first one. Let's notice in verse 1. It says, And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the, one, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. Now, then, this was the first seal, because in verse uh, uh, 3 it says, and when he had opened the second seal, if you glance down at verse 3. So, when he opened one, it was naturally the first one. You open the first one first. It says, and I heard as it were the noise of thunder. Now, in the Bible, thunder represents judgment, turmoil, trouble. Things are going to happen. And one of the four beasts say, uh, saying, Come and see. And I saw and behold a white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow. And a crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now then, here you have the first, in the first horse that is revealed here, there are four. The the white horse, I hope you've been reading ahead. And then there's the red horse. And then there's the black horse. And then there's the pale horse. Actually, the pale is a green or chrome, a livid color. 
it represents the color of a corpse. And so we find that there are all these horses that are spoken of, these four, and they all are representative. And this white horse, notice the one that sat on him, uh, had a bow, but he doesn't have an arrow. Here's a bloodless conquest. He was to try to bring peace without war. And by the way, all of these various things that we're reading here continue throughout the book. You're going to find these aspects continuing through the book of Revelation. In other words, there's just not a white horse and then that's the end of it. He continues to exist and the, the effort continues till at least half of the tribulation period as far as this white horse is concerned, trying to bring peace uh, without war. And then the war comes. Trouble comes. In the last half of the Great Tribulation, we find things increase and more battles and more bloodshed takes place when we come to the next one. But all of these coincide and continue to exist during the Tribulation period. Here's a leader that uh, John sees, a rider on this horse. And a crown was given to him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. But he's doing it by peaceful means. The next one you'll see has a sword in his hand when you come down to verse 4. And so it's a different situation. Some say that this is the Antichrist, but uh, in studying the book of Daniel, you'll find it's not the personal Antichrist, but the little horn which Daniel saw coming out of the ten-horned beast, Daniel chapter 7. And this coming leader of the revived Roman Empire is to uh, try to bring peace without war, first of all. A bloodless conquest. And no peace will ever come, whether it's attempted by peaceful means or by war, that will be lasting until Jesus comes in Revelation chapter 19. And the 20th chapter, we have the kingdom of peace and rule of peace and righteousness. So all the attempts of man to bring peace in whatever means. You know, we have a lot of people now trying to promote peace. Well, that's well and good. Certainly we should be peacemakers. But it will be of short duration. Whatever peace is made, haven't you noticed that all the uh, peaceful efforts, they have an end to them. And then here comes the wars again and troubles. Look at these nations over there that we're trying to help now to settle their disturbances and some of the most terrible bloodshed that's taking place. Because they were once at peace and then they begin to fight and they begin to war and they begin to get jealous and greedy and they fight each other and kill each other. And then someone comes along and tries to make peace, but it's not lasting. And neither will this peace that uh, is attempted be lasting. So this is a bloodless conquest. He had a this white horse symbolizes coming in that way to uh, bring peace. The horse in the Bible symbolizes uh, power for war, but here is one that comes with a bow and not an arrow. Now, verse three says, "And when he had opened the second seal, look at this. I heard the second beast say, 'Come and see.'" And there went out another horse that was red. Here you have a red horse. And power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth 
By what means? And they that's and and that they should kill one another, and there was given unto him a great sword. War. He takes away the false peace that was promoted. And it takes war. And there's killing. And then in verse 5, And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld in lo a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny, and see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. Now, what does happen after war? Famine. So you have a false peace, first of all, and that didn't do. The the rider on the second horse has a sword in his hand, and he comes and makes war. And then after the war is over, what happens? The, The black horse comes, and this brings famine. Famine follows war. And here we see how terrible the famine was by looking at this. It says he had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard, verse 6, heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. Now, a penny or denarius was a whole day's wages. And a measure of wheat would be just enough for one person for one meal. Can you imagine taking your whole day's wages to just buy enough for yourself, let alone wife and children, let alone any other persons in the family, for one meal for that day? So that's how terrible the situation is going to be. We're talking about great tribulation in the future. We know in some areas in the world now, it's, it, there's such a poverty and uh, it takes almost everything that people can make to, to just buy food. I was amazed years ago when they would tell about when Russia was under communism and Soviet Union and all. You'd see those furry caps they wear. And we were told the news commentators would say that it took them like three months and I forget, maybe more, but it was a long period of time to earn enough money to just buy that cap. And you know, uh, they were were suffering. They made very little in certain parts of the world and have made uh, very small wages. That's why we have uh, people coming over from Mexico all the time because they come over here and they want to make, try to make a living. Their pay is down to almost nothing. That's why that our big companies send, send all their uh, works down to Mexico. They get it done for a tenth of the labor, or twentieth of the labor that it costs in, the, in our country. Good or bad, I'm not going to argue politics about it. I'm just stating the facts. That that's why we have these things. So here, in this particular time, a uh, measure of wheat for a penny or a day's work, and... Uh, a measure, three measures of barley, if you want to eat something else, for a penny. By the way, who wants to just eat wheat and barley? You, it, wheat's good to make the bread, but if you took that wheat and made bread, well, uh, you'd have to pay a whole day's labor for enough to make the bread for one meal. All right, let's look at verse 7. 
Oh, by the way, verse 6, again, it says, And see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. The oil and the wine are luxuries. These are for, this is for the rich people. They won't be hurt about this. People well off, it's the poor people that will suffer. And the rich will not be touched. Verse 7, And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice, the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And his name that sat on him was death. Now look, and hell followed with him. Now a pale horse, as we've already said, if you look it up in the Greek, it's, uh, it is green, actually. When it says pale, or chrome, or livid looking. And we've already said that in a sense it's being the uh, color of a corpse. And it says Hades, death and hell, or hell here is Hades. The region of the, of the unseen is populated because of the war and the famine. And it says, and death and hell followed with him. And power was given unto him over the fourth part of the earth to kill with a sword. Now look, here you have the sword. That's the red horse in verse uh, 4. And you have the fa- uh, hunger. That's verse uh, 5 and 6. And then you have death. And with the beasts of the earth. The beasts of the earth helped to populate the uh, place of the Hades, the region of the unseen. When it says hell here, it's not the hell of fire. It's the hell of, or the Hades actually, of the departed from this life. And we know it's not talking about the Christian day. It's talking about other people. Now, verse 9, it says, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar. Now, this is in heaven. Under the altar, uh, the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. They were slain. These people, uh, these are tribulation martyrs. These are people that are martyred during the great tribulation. And there are some that are martyred in the early part of it. And there's some that are martyred later on. We, we find that uh, at one time they say, well, whence came these? And it says, these are those that came out of a great tribulation. Where did these come from? These people, these souls under the altar. They came out of great tribulation. Well, here, these souls under the altar were the tribulation martyrs. And they were martyred because... For the word of God. Because they stood for the word of God. And it says, and for the testimony which they held. Their faith in the Lord. You think that we have it rough nowadays. When people just maybe make a little fun of us. Or kind of shun or slur. Or mock at something we say that's in a Christian uh, context. But they're going to have it worse then. They'll be killed when they do not. uh, When they have to take a stand for the Word of God and have to take a stand for their testimony of their faith in Christ. We don't have it like them, do we? Let me read a verse in Matthew 24, verse 9. Jesus gives us the key to this tribulation. Verse 9, He says, Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you and you shall be hated of all nations for My name's sake. And he's talking about great tribulation too. In fact, the 24th chapter of Matthew's gospel is Jewish in origin and context. 
Jesus speaks there of his when he speaks of his coming in power and great glory. He's not talking about the rapture of the saints. He's talking about at the end of this tribulation. And so this tribulation is going going on <clears throat> uh, as we're reading now in the book of Revelation. But that's what Jesus predicts in Matthew chapter 24. Because when he comes down to the fact that you shall see the Son of Man coming uh, in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, he's talking about Revelation chapter 19 when he comes back to this earth in power and great glory. He's not talking about Revelation chapter 4 where the saints were caught up uh, symbolically as John was uh, told to come up hither and the trumpet was sounding and uh, symbolical of the dead in Christ rising and the living believers being taken up to be to meet the Lord in the air. See, there's two phases of Christ's coming. The first phase is He comes in the heavens for His own. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That's the first phase. And He comes and He calls, and the dead in Christ are resurrected, and we which are alive and remain, Paul says, are caught up together with them, the dead in Christ, to meet the Lord where? In the air. Not on the earth, but in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And then, Revelation chapter 19, we find Christ coming back to this earth and judging the wicked, and the battle of Armageddon taking place. And then chapter 20 shows us the millennial rule of, uh, and reign of righteousness and peace. And Isaiah predicts that time when he says the wolf and the lamb shall lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the bullock or the, the calf or the ox. That doesn't happen today, does it? The lion eats the ox. And the wolf eats the lamb. But then there will be peace. And Isaiah predicts it. And if you read Revelation chapter 20, you'll find that there's a peaceful thousand year reign, rule and reign of Christ. And only when Christ comes will there be that kind of peace that will be enjoyed. Let's look at this quickly now. It says in verse 9, and when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Lord, why do you let them get by with this? These are living souls in the presence of God. Their bodies have been killed. They're in the presence of God under the altar. And they're saying, God... Why did you permit this to happen to us? Someone says, how can the dead be living? Well, our soul goes and departs to be with God. And not only do we depart to be with God in this day and age of grace, but they depart to be with God immediately when they're slain. And so they're the tribulation martyrs. And as tribulation martyrs, they they say, God, why don't you do something about these people that have killed us? At the, during this tribulation that's coming on the earth. During all this bloodshed and war and famine and death. And that we've been killed for the word of God and for the testimony that we held. And so they're wanting God to do something about it. And it says in verse uh, 11, And white robes were given unto every one of them. White robes, symbolical of the righteousness of saints. So they're going to be clothed in white. And, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season. In other words, be patient. These tribulation martyrs were told to be patient. 
until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. So they're the beginning of the tribulation martyrs. And God is saying to them that they, you have to wait and then vengeance will come finally and judgment will come upon the wicked in a future time. But right now, rest for a little season. Just, just take it easy and wait for God to do what He's going to do. In those days, there's tribulation, confusion. And we're going to find a lot of shaking taking place in the next seal. Verse 12. We'll try to hurry now. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal. Now remember, it's a seven seal book. And lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. Let's stop there for a moment. Now then, though many of these things are to be taken symbolic, yet at the same time, great physical phenomena will take place and will occur. And they're also involved. And during this tribulation time, there's going to be... uh, the symbols here of governments failing and all as we read of mountains and stars and uh, various things happening. But a lot of these are physical upheavals and phenomena in the heavenlies. And so I believe that here when you read in verse 12, and lo, there was a great earthquake. It's probably a little earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became as blood. So you're going to find these physical upheavals. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, when she is shaken of mighty wind. This is called the shaking of all things. And this is anticipating the end of all things at the end of the tribulation. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Now then, we know that there's going to be governmental upheaval. There's going to be tribulation and confusion and the civil and governmental powers are going to uh, be shaken to pieces. A great shaking is going to take place. And sometimes the islands and mountains symbolize governments. It says, And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island 